what we all know is true is that we look at the world and it's, it's chaos and there's difficulty and there's challenges and there's all sorts of kind of, you know, tension and all of these different things and that bleeds in to the church. If you look at the studies, and you haven't because you've got things to do and, you know, places to go, but for people like me that this is what we do for a living, we look at studies and we look at how different statistics bring themselves out, and the church in America, it's facing really critical moment. It's really under some duress. The, the world is more isolated. We're more divided. People are angry. And over the last several years, one in three, according to these studies, one in three people have left the church. They've just decided, this is not for me. Everybody has different reasons, but have just kind of left and have never come back. In America, belief in God and in Scripture, it is at an all-time low. There's now, for the first time in American history, more people that classify themselves as nuns. I don't have a religious foundation. I'm, I'm not anything. Those outweigh the people that would f call themselves followers of Jesus. And so with all of that and with all of the things that you see on the news, the question that we're going to try to answer in this series is what would Jesus say to the church today? Not, not just our church, but certainly our church, but to the, if you will, the big C church. What would Jesus say? What encouragements would he give? What corrections would he give? How would he point us as we move forward into this kind of difficult and challenging times? And the good news for us in God's grace is that we don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to kind of think, well, he might say this or he might say that because we find letters that Jesus wrote to churches in Revelation. And there were seven churches that Jesus, through the apostle John, wrote letters to. And so over the next several weeks, we're just gonna take a look at each one of those letters that Jesus wrote to these churches because it speaks so much to our church and to the local church and to the global church today because like those churches who were facing tension and struggle and problems and chaos and things that we can't even fathom, they needed encouragement and they needed direction and they needed Jesus to tell them, you're doing good here, but this part you really need to shore up and this thing isn't quite right, but here over here, well, you're doing such a good job. And so again, to get there, we're gonna be in Revelation. And man, I get it. Revelation can be really, let's just be honest, it can be really weird. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to just read through Revelation. If you like sci-fi, if you like the Stranger Things uh, TV show, do yourself a favor and read through Revelation because it's full of so much imagery and so much uh, things that what, is they, what are they talking about? There's heavenly visions and there's bizarre creature. There's a dragon that chases a woman who's just had a baby. There's a beast from the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Some of you used to date her, I think, actually. I don't know if you remember. Uh, you, you've seen her. No, that's not true. Uh, but it's, it's this. It's a strange, strange book. But before we get into the first letter that Jesus writes, let me just try to help us, because it is so strange, let me try to help us understand why Revelation was written the way it was. There are a lot of interpretations, a lot of confusion, but here's just three things that anytime you read Revelation, and as we're in this series, that you should remember. Number one is that Revelation is an apocalypse. You've 
heard the word apocalypse before, and you've heard it in the sense of this storm is of apocalyptic nature, or it's really big, or it's really big. That's not what that means. Revelation is literally the word that's translated from apocalypse. Apocalypse means revelation. And in apocalyptic literature, what revelation is, there's so many signs and symbols and numbers used to help describe something else. And so when we see these bizarre creatures and all of these things and it leaves us scratching our heads, it's because we're reading it from a 21st century English tradition, English translation. But for these readers, they understood apocalyptic literature. And so when they read things like Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, I saw a lamb looking as he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out all the, all the earth. Man, to us, that seems, I can't fathom that. I don't understand that. But in apocalyptic literature, again, numbers mean things, and symbols mean things, and creatures mean things. And so if you were reading this with the lens of apocalyptic literature, here's what they would have read. The number seven just illustrates, and they would have known this, perfection or completion. And the eyes would have, they would have fully understand just as quick as they read it. Oh, that means wisdom. And the horns, that means strength. And so when these readers would have read this. Here's what they would have read. Jesus, who was the Lamb, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The reason that we have faith in Jesus is because he was slain, but he's not dead anymore. He's standing. He's alive. And he's perfectly strong and completely wise. That's what that means is that Jesus was the Lamb of God, he was slain, he rose from the dead, and now in heaven, as he looks at us, perfectly strong, completely wise. Revelation just means a revealing. That if you can imagine, here's the best way to describe it. You've seen Wizard of Oz, right? You've seen the movie Wizard of Oz. And you remember at Wizard of Oz, when Toto pulls back the curtain and that, that what they thought was this big, scary Oz was just this little old man, what Toto do, did was an apocalypse because apocalypse, revelation, just means an unveiling, a revealing, that it helps us to see things that were previously hidden. And so when Toto pulls the curtain back on the old man, he did an apocalypse. That's what revelation is. It's just helping us to see things from Jesus's perspective. Not only is it an apocalypse, though, what you need to remember is that Revelation is a prophecy. And not so much, and, and people get really tied up, and it's not wrong or bad, it's just, you know, what they do. They get really tied up in the prophecy and what's coming and what's coming and what could be true and what all of the things and what does this mean and does this mean this. But what I would invite you to do as you read through Revelation is to just take a breath, recognizing it is a prophecy, but it's not so much about what is coming as much as it is what is true in light of what's coming. And there's a big difference. It's not so much trying to figure out the wins and the whys and the wheres. It's in light of there is something coming, there is something that is true. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, John writes this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. We're going to do that here in just a second. And blessed are those who hear it. That's what we're going to do. And then your job is to take heart. 
So I'm going to hear something, I'm going to hear something that's true, and in light of what's true, I'm going to do something about it. Blessed are those who hear, uh, uh, hear and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is here. Revelation is an instruction manual of how we should live our lives of how in light of that Jesus ultimately is returning again and is ultimately going to have everything under his feet, this is how I live in the meantime. It's not a crystal ball to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. It's in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back someday, one day, this afternoon, or in a thousand years. Here's how I'm going to live until that happens, and that's an important difference. You can get so caught up in the weeds of trying to figure out when and how and all the things, but what John's idea is, not so much trying to figure out the times and the things, it's in light of someday it is happening, how does that impact me today? In light that Jesus is coming back, what should I do while I'm at work on Monday and when I go to the boardroom and when I'm a parent and when I'm trying to navigate this world? How should I live in light of that? And then number three, this is important that you remember, Revelation is a letter. We call it a, a, a book, but really it's a letter from John. And John, as you may or may not know, was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of Jesus' really really close friends, and John is 80-some years old when he writes this. Sixty years had passed since Jesus had died and rose again. John refused to bow his knee to Rome, and so he has been exiled to the island of Patmos. You can look on a map, and you can see it for yourself. But John is writing not just to everybody in that moment, but really John is writing to the churches that he loves, the churches that he's pastored, the churches that he has wanted to encourage and wanted to build up, and he's telling him, hey, in light of all the difficulty and all of the challenges that you're facing, here's how you should live. I don't want you to lose heart. You're experiencing things that, again, our 21st century mind cannot comprehend. We can't comprehend our family being ripped apart and thrown to hungry lions. We can't comprehend that, but John's right readers could. We, we can't comprehend that if we didn't sprinkle incense on the altar of the Roman gods that we could be killed for that. That's not something that we can process. But John's people, John's congregations, they understood that. They, they had seen that. They had smelled the burnt bodies. They had seen the crucifixions. And so John is riding them in these extraordinary images and in these things that we can't fully process because we didn't live in the times and the seasons I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to give up. I know that it's difficult. I know that persecution is at its peak, but I want you to remain strong, and I want you to remain faithful because at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Jesus wins in the end. That is the whole point of Revelation. When you read Revelation and there is the chaos and there is the confusion, but what you have to keep and what I have to keep front and center is that Jesus wins in the end, that he's already won on the cross and he's won over death and hell, but someday, one day, everything is going to be under Jesus' feet. The things that you're facing now, the difficulties that I'm going through now, those will not last forever. The bad news is that the people in these churches and the people in our church and the people in the local church and the global church, we don't always live as if Jesus is one. 
We sometimes get so focused on the here and the now and the chaos and what's on the news and what I read on social media that I forget, in spite of everything, Jesus has already one, and so I can remain firm in that when everything else is in chaos. And so if you have a Bible this morning, let me just give you a quick rundown. First, uh, uh, chapter one, verse 10 and 11, this is kind of the intro of what John is getting ready to do. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. There wasn't an actual trumpet. Again, it's imagery. It was just, it was a voice that commanded attention. Have you ever just been around, and maybe you've heard taps played at a cemetery, or you've heard at a, a game, the trumpets go off. Man, that's, it's just a piercing sound that kind of cuts through everything else. John is not saying that Jesus sounds like a trumpet. He's just saying that his voice, it cuts through, and people can respond to that. So I went on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. This is what we're going to do over the next seven weeks. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I can't remember how to exactly say that word. But that's, the, that's week seven. I've got time to learn how to say it. Don't worry about it. And so John, that's exactly what he does. He's going to write this letter. The first one he's going to write is Ephesus. Why did he start with Ephesus? Because again, you can look it up for yourself. These aren't the only seven churches. Seven is the number of completion, remember? And so in all seven of these churches, we see really all the things that impact our church and our world today. Ephesus is the first one. Not, it's not mysterious just because on the mail truck, Ephesus was the first town that they would get to. So Ephesus comes first. And so let's dive into it. Every single week, we're going to look at one more of those churches. And I hope that it'll encourage you. I hope that it'll help you. I hope that it'll help grow us. If you want to follow along, chapter 2, verse 1 is where John starts his letter to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. People aren't exactly sure even today what, the, what angel is. Some people think it's a literal actual angel that was kind of spent, uh, that his job was to be at that church. Other people think it was kind of the pastor of the church. Lots of people have lots of good ideas for both, but you're going to see it. Every single letter starts with, to the angel of the church. So I kind of tend to uh, lean to, it's probably the pastor of the church. It's called, that, that word is translated messenger. I think that's probably what it is, but I could be definitely wrong. Great arguments on both sides. But don't let that trip you up. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. He's writing to us too. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Later on, we're going to figure out that the golden lampstands, those are the churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right 
to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is Ephesus. I think, Kayla, are we a little bit? Yeah. So this is Ephesus. I was going to bring a picture, but I... But I didn't. But Ephesus, here's why Ephesus is important. Ephesus is, the, you can go to that next slide, Caleb. Ephesus is the fourth largest city in ancient Rome, one of the most important cities in Rome. This was almost certainly the largest church in the known world. They hosted the Pan-Ionian Games. You've maybe heard of those. Those were the second largest, next to the Olympics, second largest sporting event in the world. People traveled from everywhere to get to Ephesus, and their claim to fame was that they had the temple of Artemis. And the temple of Artemis was the Greek god of fertility, and they built this extraordinary, extraordinary temple. Later on, when you go home, Google seven wonders of the ancient world, and the temple of Artemis is one of those seven wonders. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary work of architecture, and people from all over would come to Ephesus and worship here. And this church that was here was a really really great church. We know that the Apostle Paul was the one who started the church, and then the Apostle Paul was ran out of town because he started to disrupt the sex trade because of all the things with that temple. He was ran out of town for fear of death, and so he passed on the church to Timothy. You can read about First and Second Timothy. Timothy also was ran out of town, and John became the pastor of this church. And an extraordinary little note, Mary the mother of Jesus was a member of this church in Ephesus. You remember when Jesus was crucified, Jesus said to John, John, I want you to take care of my mother. He said to his mother, I want you to consider John like your son. And so as John pastored this church, there was Mary. Imagine how cool that would be to have Mary as part of your church and you're having your Christmas Eve service and you're talking, tell us Mary, how was the donkey ride when you were eight months pregnant? Did you enjoy that? It would have just been unbelievable. And there's so many wonderful things that we see that was right about the church in Ephesus. They were energetic in their service. They were patient. Do we have that next slide? Maybe we do. There it is. They were energetic in their service. They were patient in their suffering, and they were orthodox in their faith. In other words, they, they didn't trace these crazy tangents and just be swayed by whatever other people said. And they, this was an awesome Awesome church, and more and more people, in spite of persecution and death and threats, were coming to faith in Jesus because of this church. The Romans at that time and the people in Ephesus, they practiced this thing called uh, exposure, where if they had children that they didn't want or if they had children that were diseased, they would just leave them outside and they would just let them die or maybe somebody would come pick them up and turn them into a slave. And the church in Ephesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the way that it should be. And so the church in Ephesus was famous for going and hunting down these children that were left to die and left to abandon. And they brought them in and they adopted them as their own. And they became children that were loved and cherished. This was an extraordinary, extraordinary church. And Jesus starts this letter by letting them know, I see all the things you're doing. I see how you've been faithful. I see how you've stood up against persecution. I see all the times that you could have given up and you haven't, and I'm proud of you. And so here's good news for us. And maybe for you, this is exactly what you needed to hear this morning, is that Jesus knows and Jesus sees. Is that in your perseverance, 
Jesus knows and Jesus sees. When, when you were generous and nobody else took notice, Jesus saw. Jesus saw how patient you were been. Jesus has seen how you've chosen the hard right over the easy wrong. Jesus has seen how you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it doesn't seem like you've gotten any answers, but you just kept praying, and you've stayed faithful, and it would have been easier to give up. It would have been easier to cut corners. It would have been easier to just go with the flow, but you said, no, my faith in Jesus pushes me in that direction. Jesus knows and Jesus sees that Jesus has recognized and has taken note of all of the times in your life where you could have went the wrong way and really nobody else would have known. Jesus has seen all the times in your life when you could have kind of gotten into the gray area and everybody else would have been fine with it, but you said, no, I'm going to stand for what Jesus has called me to do. I'm not going to go in that direction. I'm going to stay sexually pure. I'm going to take my finances seriously and be generous. Jesus knows and Jesus sees and he is faithful, and he is proud. In other words, there is no act of faithfulness or obedience in your life that Jesus has forgotten. And that should be an encouragement to some people, that it feels sometimes like, man, I just, I've been trying to do my best, but nothing's happening for me. And I've been praying, but nothing's coming my way, and I'm, I'm thinking about giving up. Jesus knows, and Jesus, and that's the story of the church of Ephesus. They've been faithful, they've been faithful, they've been faithful, and yet they're still persecuted, and they've been faithful. They've had challenges, and they've stayed faithful. And Jesus writes them a letter to let them know, I saw that. I'm grateful for that. That hasn't gone unnoticed. And so what's the problem for the churches of Ephesus? Almost every letter has the same kind of format that it's written in. It says, here's something you're doing great, Here's an area where you need to improve. Here's what happens if you don't improve. But if you can make these changes, here's the result of what that will be. And so the Ephesus church, man, you are so faithful and you're doing the right things and you're making the right choices. The problem is you don't love Jesus. The, the problem is you, you've kind of stepped into a lot of activity, but you don't love Jesus, or at least not as you used to. It said it this way in verse number four. It'll be here on the screen. Yet this I hold against you. You're faithful. You're faithful. I see it. You've been doing great. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And we find ourselves there. At least I find myself there. Remember, for those of you that are married, remember when you first fell in love? Well, I mean, all the feelings and all of the excitement, time was no object. You would stay up all night because you just wanted to talk to the one that you loved. Money was no object. You would figure out a way. If she wanted to go out on a date, I'm going to figure out a way to make that happen. When Brandy and I were falling in love, I was falling first. She took her time, but we, we finally made it there. But she, while, while we were falling in love, she was living in China. And she was working in an orphanage there. And, of course, this was before the times of iPhones and texts and Skype and all those things. And so I was falling in love. So I would go to the little BP gas station right across the street from my house, and I would buy these international calling cards. I don't know if you've ever had to buy international calling cards. We've been married now 16 years, and I'm just about to pay that off. I'm really getting close to paying off all of those calling cards because it's expensive to call China. You used to pay $50 and you'd get about three minutes worth of talking 
but I was falling in love. And so, man, just keep taking my money, BP, congratulations. I wanted to talk to the one that I love. But 16 years have passed. I'm not buying a phone card anymore. You know, we just get into the routine, right? And Brandy and I talk about this sometimes, that we can recognize in ourselves, and if you're married, this has happened to you, is that if we're not careful, we can just be roommates. And we can just be people that kind of do all the things together, but there's no connection, there's no intimacy, there's just going through the motions. And that happens in our faith in Jesus, is that we... We do all the right things, and you're here, and you're watching online, you're singing the songs, and maybe you'll give in the offering here a little bit, and that's so good. But Jesus says to the church, here's, here's the problem, is that you've replaced intimacy with activity, and, and replaced passion that you once had with just these kind of projects that you're doing. There's nothing wrong with projects, there's nothing wrong with, with activity, it's good to be here and in the rows, but not at the expense of, of love, not the expense of, of knowing Jesus. I mean, again, when you, were, when you were falling in love with Jesus, if that's ever happened to you, do you remember how exciting it was? I mean, you were not gonna miss church for anything, not, not out of obligation, but you just could not wait to be there. And, and you were opening up scripture and you just consumed it and you didn't understand it all, but there was just this passion, there was this hunger, there was this love. And Jesus points to the church in Ephesus and he points to me and he points to you and he says, do you remember that? That's what I want. Because we can, I can. I, I mean, I do this for a living and I can fall in love with the activity of Christianity and at the same time fall out of love with Jesus that I can get so good at the rhythms and the routines and when to stand and when to set and how to say this and how to do that, and I can get so consumed with acting the part that I forget there is a person of Jesus on the other side, and we move through life, and you move through life seemingly doing all the right things. I mean, you're not cheating on your wife. You're not cheating on your taxes. You're, you're living the right way, just like the church in Ephesus was. But Jesus says, Ah, you've forsaken the love that you had at first. This is what I hold against you. We can just go through life, and we can just assume, because I'm doing all the right things, that, well, Jesus is with me, and Jesus is here. There's a great illustration of this. Maybe you heard the story that Mary and Joseph had took Jesus to the temple to be dedicated when he was just a few days old, and as they were headed back home, do you remember the story? that Jesus didn't go with them. And here's the, the verse in, in Luke, it says, it says this, thinking he was in their company, they just kept going, they just traveled on for the day. They just assumed that Jesus was there. And I mean, how many parents have, have done this? Now, I feel pretty good about myself that I've never left my children for a whole day. I've not forgotten them for a whole day, so am I better than Mary and Joseph? Maybe, some would say, some would say that. I, don't, I wouldn't say that, but maybe. Uh, I've not left my kids for an entire day. I would, there's been several days where I would have liked to have left them for an entire day, but that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. But we find ourselves here, right? We just go through life. I'm just doing the right thing. I'm moving in the right direction. I mean, I was in church, and I just assumed that Jesus was here. I just assumed that Jesus was, was with me, but all of the time, he was somewhere else while I was so busy 
with activity. I get, I get focused on my career and on family and on relationships, and they're not sinful. They're, they're, they're good. But somewhere along the way, we wake up and we realize, Jesus doesn't feel close. That I, I just feel like I'm kind of walking through the mud. I, I don't feel and sense Jesus anymore. And so the question that John asks for us through, through Jesus is just a very simple one. Do you still love Jesus? I, I not, do you still go to church? Not, do you read the Bible? Not, do you serve or do you give? And not, are you a good person? Those are all good things, but those are different than loving Jesus. That you can be really good at being a Christian and not love Jesus at the same time. It happens gradually, it happens quietly, and we don't even realize that we've fallen out of love of, with Jesus until we wake up and that one day and we just realize, I do a lot of things for Jesus, but I don't really spend time with Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm awesome at the activity of Jesus, but there's just no intimacy there. And so John, through Jesus, writes this, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That in other words, John is saying this, and again, because there's so much imagery, here's what John is saying. If this problem doesn't get solved, the church in Ephesus, their impact and their light and their influence is just gonna fade away that the church might remain full and the pews might remain full, but if you don't get this right, if you just get content with activity and not intimacy, you are going to fail as a church even if the church is full because where simple love for Jesus goes, so goes the light. Where simple love for Jesus goes, so goes light. Churches do not die because people stop attending Churches do not die because people stop giving. People do not, churches do not die because people start, stop serving in them. Churches die because people that attend faithfully stop loving Jesus. And they sit in chairs and they fill the pews and they sing the songs and they know when to stand and they know when to sit and they know how to pray and they know how to do all the things, but there's no light because there's no Love, And we could open up the scripture and we can read about and talk about and learn about the person of Jesus without having any connection to the intimacy of Jesus. The building might remain, but there's no light there. The people are there, but there's no power there. There's no connection there. And every other, we're going to read six more letters over the course of the uh, series. Every other problem in the church of that time and every other problem in the church of America and in the world and of our church stems from this one problem. That if we don't get this right, nothing else matters. That if we get content with activity and not intimacy, if we get content with projects and not passion, that will happen to us. I love this quote in this commentary. It says this, without first love, service becomes lifeless routine or even drudgery. Without first love, endurance becomes the joyless shuffle of the stone. Without first love, orthodoxy becomes narrow-minded, nitpicking legalism. Without 
first love, hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves. And you've met people like that. I've met people like that. The, the, why is that person that, that does all the right things so difficult and so ugly and so hateful and yet they, they, they know about Jesus and they can quote verses about Jesus, well, they've lost love. They've gotten content with activity without intimacy and when love is not there, we become self-righteous and legalistic and we just go through the rhythm. But Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, he gives the church in Ephesus and he gives our church and the global church a way forward. Here they are. He says this. First, I want you to remember. Remember how far you have fallen. In other words, admit to yourself. Kyle, admit to yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror and admit, I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I want to be. Admit to myself, there was a time where I was hungry and I just wanted to be with Jesus, but that has taken precedence, or the activity of Jesus has taken precedence over being with Jesus. That I Remember, admit to yourselves, and then repent. Repent just means just take a U-turn. Change direction, turn around. Change my schedule, change my habits, change my commitments in order to restore not more activity, but intimacy. That I, I, I confess that I am in love with other lords. I am in love with other gods. I am in love with the God of progress. I'm in love with the God of money. I'm in love with the God of relationships. None of those in and of themselves are bad until they turn into my Lord. And so John says, remember and repent. Don't let things be more important than Jesus. Don't replace the intimacy with activity. Don't let the good things become the main thing. And then, redo. Remember, repent, redo. In other words, what was it at first that drove you? When you heard that Jesus had come for you, with you in mind, that he suffered, that he died, that he was rose again so that you could be in relationship with God. How did that feel to your heart? What did you respond like? And you just wanted to be with him. You wanted a relationship with him, not just what you could do for him. That we used to listen, right? We used to listen for his voice. He used to take time and just be still and enjoy his company. Redo, remember repent and redo and and here's this is not an invitation to add more things to your schedule it's not an invitation yep you're right Kyle here's what I need to do I need to go and and pray more I need to go pray for 10 minutes longer than I've been praying and that, that no 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 that's not, that's not it that's not it that's not it is that redoing always involves time and maybe even more important intention time and if your marriage, by the way, is on the rocks and you're struggling with your marriage, you know how you repair your marriage? Time, intention. Do you remember how, you know how to repair your marriage? You remember, you repent, and you redo. Do you know how to repair your relationship with God? Remember, repent, redo with time and intention. Because there is no way, there is no way, according to Jesus, writing the church to the letter, of, uh, writing to the church in Ephesus, there is no way for us to remain faithful over the course of a lifetime than to be in love with Jesus. That it requires love. Activity, it can carry us for just so long, but it won't carry us to the end. This is what it says in verse number seven. Whoever has ears, 
let them hear. Not, not what Kyle says, but who, who cares what Kyle says? But whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You could just put your name there. To the one who is victorious, to the one who makes it to the end, to the one who remains in love with Jesus, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. You remember the story from Genesis where, man, there was, there was life and it was kind of barred away and Jesus said, that's not for you. And man, that's what John is, remem that's what John is remembering. But man, if you are victorious, if you remain in love until the end, I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in, in other words, it's in the paradise of God, which is heaven. That it is love that brings us home to heaven. Love for Jesus is what brought Jesus to earth. Love from Jesus is what caused him to suffer and die. And now we respond to his love with our love. Activity doesn't get me there. Doing doesn't get me there. Going through the motions because I feel guilty doesn't get me there. It's just simple love for Jesus, responding that he loved first. Because the message of the gospel is not that we love Jesus and he responded to our love. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' first love was you. And now I just respond to that. That I respond to the love that Jesus has already put on display. I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't go through the motions and that he didn't just be content with activity. Love drove him all the way. Love drove him to the cross. Love drove him to suffer. Love drove him to die. And so now, in light of that, he doesn't ask me for more activity and more doing and more just being busy. He asked Kyle, time and intention. Just love. Here's the great news, is that even when we mess it up, when we're like this church in, in Ephesus, God remains in love with us. That we are not the chief pursuer in this relationship. That Jesus is the one that is the pursuer and then I respond, not with activity, but I respond with love. Paul said it this way to Timothy, the second pastor of the church in Ephesus. Man, if we're faithless, and we all are at some points, right? He remains faithful because it's just who he is. It's just God cannot help himself but to be faithful. John, let me just finish with this and we're going to be done for the day. John referred to himself as the one that Jesus loved. John was the only of the disciples that was there at the crucifixion. He was the one that watched Jesus die. He was the one that Jesus said, John, I want you to take care of my mother. Mary, I want you to take John and his own. John was the one who stayed until the end. And our final kind of thing I want to drive home with you this morning, if we can just take a one little piece home, that only those that love Jesus to the end will stick with him to the end. Listen, activity and problems and chaos in your life are going to come. And if you aren't in love with Jesus, you will get sidetracked by all those things. That... that you can only go through the activity for so long until you just get busy and I just don't have time for it. Or, man, if you just go through the activity because you feel guilty and you feel like God's out to get you, that will only take you so long. It is love that brings you all the way home. Love will sustain you. Love for Jesus will sustain you through difficult seasons. Love for Jesus will sustain you through, I prayed this prayer and you didn't answer, but... 
I just think that you love me and I love you and so I'm gonna stay faithful. It's love, it's love, it's love. And so here's the question for you to take home with you as we finish up. What will you do to rekindle that first love in your life? What, what will you do, not, not add more things to your schedule, it's probably taking things away. It not, not getting involved in more activity, it's probably removing some activity. But what that will, invite, will always involve time, will always involve intention, what will you do to rekindle that first love in your life? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, this is sometimes a hard thing for us to hear because if we're honest, like Mary and Joseph, we can just be traveling along the road and all of a sudden wake up and realize Jesus isn't here. Lord, I'm asking that you would, through the power of your spirit, speak to every single one of us exactly what we need to hear. That if we are in the place where we're, we're so active, but we're not intimate, that we have so much things that we do, but we just don't have the passion, Lord, would you help us to do what you told that first church to do, to remember, to repent, and to redo. Lord, we pray that we would not get so content with just activity and miss out on the intimacy that you have for us. Help us to respond to the love that you have given to us. Lord, I'm praying that, that we would recognize in a brand new way that you are the chief pursuer in this relationship, and we are invited to respond to you in that. Help us to love you. It's in your name that we pray.